So yeah, let's let's just kick this thing off. Um, welcome to American Soccer Analysis, uh, Sean and I, Harrison Crow. Um, we're just kind of hanging out um, post weekend, talking a little bit about some of the things that we kind of come up. There's a lot of little uh, intricacies that have kind of kind of reared its head. A lot of talking points um, as we're coming out of this weekend. Obviously, the largest is Kai Kamara, as he um, kind of gets punted uh, slash. Um, excused from uh, from Columbus. It's it, it's kind of a weird scenario in some respects and in others. I guess the writing was on the wall for a little bit, or at least that's what everyone kind of claimed. I didn't realize that there was such a problem. I feel like you know after there there was a little bit of uh, a little bit of awkwardness early in the season just because of everything that was going on concerning his contract and trying to become a designated player. But I thought that that was that appeared at least to be kind of finished and done with. Um, apparently not. Um, apparently, you know, there, there's, there's a lot more going on there than a lot of us that, you know, aren't really privy to the back workings of, uh, MLS offices. So with that, he is traded for a DP's ransom, uh, are you Sean? First of all, before we really get into what he was traded, are you were you shocked that Kamara ended up being traded off? Uh, I mean, I, I was um, just because I didn't. I, I knew I, I thought the contract thing had been sort of settled at the beginning of the year, and then we didn't really get any inklings of any behind the scenes stuff until the PK thing, and then even post that, if you saw the interview that Twelman had with them, Kai seemed pretty genuine and being shocked and didn't seem to know why like he didn't seem to think that there was any you know like locker room problems so uh it, it was all very interesting and quite frankly i think uh, and i think we talked about this in another podcast when we looked at um value of a player and i think kai kamara's value to that team when you look at crossed through ball ratio how that team exists doing something that's generally unsustainable unless you have a guy like kai and that is they cross a ton and Kai is one of the few people in the league who converts enough from crosses that you can make that work. So by, you know, jettisoning Kai, what are they left with? They're left with an offense that doesn't seem to, you know, really work unless they totally rework it. And I think we, what we've seen with the, the Sounders this year is that's bit much easier said than done. Well, and I think you nailed it right on the head. Uh, you're going to have to really completely reorganize how you're going to function as an attack because all of a sudden the focus ha- now has to be placed, at least in my opinion, has to be refocused upon Federico Higuain, who has kind of taken a step back in this attack um, over the last year and a half with, you know, really signing Kamara and bringing him back from England and putting him down and kind of saying, this is how we're going to function. And 
it's kind of function without him. I mean, he you look at everything except for his touches. It's it's taken a step back. Everything from his key passes. You know, he had two really successful years, and then you look at last year, and he just he didn't. Kamara really hit it on the head on uh, the nail on the head when he said, "I don't get passes from you know from people. You know, it, it, that's not how I I'm successful." You know, that's not how the crew has been successful. And there's an argument, you know, albeit kind of an arbitrary one, but there's an argument that you could say that Columbus probably traded traded away the wrong player. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that from, from the sounds of it, there's more to this than I to uh, than just this whole Tiba thing. It seems kind of odd that you would trade over that because, I mean, we saw Gashi and Jones fight over PK earlier in the year, and that didn't lead to any big fallout. So, um, you know, in fact, that's probably, you know, judging by quotes alone, that's probably one of the strongest locker rooms in MLS right now. So I'm not, I think there's more to it than uh, just that. So I think there has to be something other than that for that pushed Kai specifically out. Yeah, I imagine that there probably is. And, you know, looking at what they did get in return, the team is set up to... The team is set up to find some players and to bring in a lot of... And this is what they've done over the last few years. Find a lot of players that are maybe undervalued uh, in other leagues, in lesser leagues, such as in Argentina or in Norway or in uh, some other league that maybe doesn't have the same notoriety as you know you would expect uh in times past i think that you know they're probably not going to use it to go and bring in some big you know they didn't get all this money so that they can bring in a dp but they certainly brought in enough money to where at the middle part of the year they can certainly kind of go hog wild and bring in about a good three or four guys to refocus this team and that's not considering if they end up selling off Justin Miram, and that's been a constant, or Harrison Offal, who both of which have been, you know, discussed at length um, as far as moving on from MLS. And I think it does bring up an interesting discussion value-wise, because if you look at all the parts that they got, they got Gam, they got Tam, and the interesting thing about that is Gam and Tam cannot be combined. There are no circumstances being combined. Right. The two. So that's really the ability to get maybe two players off of that or buy down someone existing, uh, but they can't work in conjunction. So you're actually splitting costs there. And then you're getting draft picks, which you can then maybe leverage for a player or you get a player. It, you know, So you're essentially trading Kamar for maybe like four guys and then arguing like, can you get enough like value out of those depth players to get value back of a Kamar, and I'm not quite sure you can, quite honestly, especially Kamar's specific value to that team. It'll be interesting to see. Um, New England, the perspective there is going to be a little bit different because this is kind of a, and it's not to be demeaning to to Kamar, we both think that he's, you know, he has an elite skill when it comes to MLS, but in general, especially when you look at New England, they already have three pretty good players that I would mark it are about above average. Charlie Davies, Teal Bunbury, Juan Aguadello. And you kind of figure out, okay, how is Kai Kamara going to fit in this? Is he going to fit up up top or is he going to actually, as they've kind of utilized Teal Bunbury, is he going to work outside? Um, 
how do they manage all four of these players and who's really going to, who do you think is going to kind of get, kind of push to the side? Well, from the looks of it, it looks like Kai Kamara is definitely starting up top. And I think that's smart. And I'll go into why that's smart in just a second. Uh, it looks like Chris Agudelo. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the reasons. Agudelo, um, I think they're going to, looks like they're just going to start trying to slide him wide again, which is, you know, I think smart. Because I think they're also examining different ways of using Rowe. Um, and I think one of those ways we are, saw him play, I think, right back. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is an interesting uh, utilization for him. Um, they've also been playing him deeper. So, uh, you know, we'll see on that front. Um, I'm, I think Bunbury is not a starter for that team. Uh, I think Davies is now a bench option. I think someone's going to be on the trading block by the end of all of this. But I think specifically when you look at why this was a good move for New England, there are a couple stats that kind of jump out. When you look at percentage of pass for when you look at a team's percentage of passes that are crosses, New England and Columbus are essentially tied at 4.7%. So he's going to a very similar style creatively in terms of the service he's going to get. Right. The how, other big how they're, how they're creating shots. Right. And the other big thing about that is well, not necessarily always creating the shots because if they don't have someone you know to get there, then they're just you know crosses to nowhere. I mean, great example, Houston leads the list. Is Houston getting a lot of shots from crosses? They're not actually getting a lot like numerically because they don't have, you know, because they're playing guys like Kubo and Bruin and Giles up top who, you know, are these short guys. So, you know, they're not these target men. So I think reorienting how that works is going to help this team a ton. And I think in general, when you look at how New England's offense operates, um, last year, uh, 33% of New England's possession was in the final third, which led the league. Uh, but their 11.38 shots per 90 was was the fifth worst in the league. So that means they had the largest final third touches to shots margin in the league. And, you know, when you look at why teams do that, a lot of the times it's they're, they can circulate it around the box. They have trouble getting penetration. And I think... When you have a nine, you can bring players in. You know, you play it to him as a release valve. He plays it back. He opens lanes. All of a sudden, you're going to get higher shot leverage, not just from Kai himself. I think a Kai-like figure can create better shot leverage for Fagundes, for Wynn, you know, for Rowe, for Agudela, for whoever they're playing. And I think as a whole, um, you're not going to see it necessarily specifically in Kai's numbers, although I'm sure his numbers will be fine. But you'll see the offense's numbers collectively go up as a result. And I think this is something they've been missing and something that really struck me when I saw them in, in LA when they were just could not get anything going in terms of getting to the box. And they had all these shots, but they were just terrible shots from outside the box. So I think this is a great move for New England. So let's let's kind of take a look at it. Obviously, the teams that are at the bottom of the standings right now Houston doesn't exactly need help on the attacking front. They have the pieces. It's about trying to work things out. Same with Portland. I think Chicago could use some help on the attacking side. Uh, and, and certainly the Sounders could. If you're What Chicago- kind of attack are we talking about? Because I think Houston actually is. I mean, I'm not sure they all do fit in Houston. I mean, this can, can 
discussion we can have on another podcast or something. But I think I, I think it is a, a good topic to have on another podcast because I agree right. with you. I don't think all the pieces necessarily fit, um, and I, I think they're trying to put some square pegs in some round holes. But I think mm-hmm. that has to do with who they have at, and, and I don't want to put it all on Owen, Owen Coyle. And we can go ahead and we can talk about this later. But uh, I, ju- I just I, I continue to question whether or not he's the right man for putting that team together, um, and, and really um, flushing everything out. You know, uh, putting the image that is on the drawing board out onto the field. I I don't know if necessarily he's the right man, right or wrong. You can agree with that opinion or not. Um, But looking at teams that are towards the bottom of the table that I think need some attacking help, that would be Chicago, um, Orlando, Seattle. Uh, Orlando's problems are a little bit more tactical-based, kind of similar to, I think, how we would talk about Houston. Mm-hmm. I think Seattle's a player way. I think it's really just about getting one central guy who can play those balls behind. Because with, I mean, we saw this against Dallas. You know, the how many times when Herc and Dempsey and Morris were played in behind by Freeberg. And if you guys have someone who can do that just a little more, you know, not necessarily a Diaz-like guy, but someone, you know, in that ilk, um, you're not going to find someone as talented as Diaz. But yeah. It, that that makes that team super dangerous and makes them a, a quick strike counter team again. And so I think they really are just one player away. And I think they know the player they want or the type of player they want. And I think they're looking in the, the right places and I think they're going to get them. So I'm not, if I'm a Sounder fan, I'm not totally worried in terms of, you know, the attacking talent that's out there. Yeah. And I, I don't think that they're a fit for anything right now. I, I, I kind of wouldn't mind seeing them try to put Dempsey in that position. He won't play it. Um, They've been, Dempsey's played center mid the last like three weeks prior to this week. And yeah, it was he doesn't like really terrible. Play center. He doesn't play. Exactly. Well, that's, exactly. So yeah. you don't want to have him play there. He's, yeah, he doesn't, exactly, he's not a playmaker. Exactly. I mean, in a, in a FIFA type world, uh, I would have him sit there and pick out passes all day long and chase balls down. And I feel like that would be really like, he could be really good about at that if he wanted to. I don't think he has the legs in the four-three-three. You want him like I think. I think I think he does. I think the pro, the the real thing is that he saves himself for those long runs up the field. That's what he constantly has in his in his in his mind, and you see it. You see him making those hard, long, forty-yard, fifty-yard runs up the field from you know box to box, and instead of going after loose balls, I mean he doesn't have the Ozio. Ozzy Alonso legs. He doesn't. You're right about that. But if he was just content to sit back there around, you know, the midline slash, you know, defensive box and just spray balls to Jordan Morris, I really think he'd be good at that. I don't think he'll ever do it, but I think that he'd be good at it. There's yeah. a there's a complete distinction in knowing a player's tendencies of what they won't do and still what they'd be good at. And I, right. think, I, I think that that's something that we can both agree on. Well, this is what I, I pointed this out as the air when Klinsman put him there, when he did that brief experiment with the 3-5-2. The, the because, um, you know, he had, basically you need three ceramids to do that. And you need like three solid ones. And he had two solid ones, and he put Dempsey there because he thought, oh, he'll be like an attacking mid. And what happened was Dempsey just sort of 
was like, I'm going to be a forward. I'm not going to stay back. So they couldn't adequately shift left or right. So they were completely exposed. And then all of a sudden, when Altidore just decided, okay, I'll be a center mid, then all of a sudden they were good in it. So, like, I always think back to that. It's like, when you look at it, the manager should know the tendencies of his players. And because to some degree you can craft it. But I think when it comes to a Clint Dempsey, you can't really teach an old dog new tricks. Like, yeah. I think you just have to know what Dempsey wants to do, what he can do. And I think, honestly, right now, it's been mind-blowing that they haven't, it's taken them this long to get him back to the forward position. Because yeah. I think that's, at this point in his career, that is his best position. He's, he has a lot of nine tendencies. He can hold the ball up. He's great at just finding the ball in the box. He's great at opening space for others, which is key when you have a Jordan Morris type player, as we saw, you know, with his with with him and Oba. So I mean, I think he's perfect for up top. And I'm just, I don't know why they've been doing this whole let's put him on the wing, let's put him in the center, uh, shuffling when you know, it's I think it's been pretty established what his best position is these last couple of years. So looking so at my so looking at some of the other teams, do you see a fit for Juan Aguadello or Charlie Davies or Teal Bunbury? Do you see a team that says, "Wow, I could, I could, I could use that"? Because I mean, there you look at Toronto FC, who has you know Josie go down, and now that they're kind of without Herc, they don't really have it. Not even, not even called Herc decent, but <laughs> he. he I think he can give you average minutes for about 60. I think he can get produced average uh, production at the position for 60 minutes. And, you know, I think that that's enough for Toronto. And we can talk about Toronto here in a second. But uh, looking down, you also have DC United. I think that they could use some help up at forward. Um, what do you mean? The- they just signed a great forward who may or may not have um- – you know, a heart problem that could uh, end. He could die. Um, yeah, he could die. Yeah, he. I didn't want to say that because he, if he does die, that's going to. Well, I mean, gonna, all right, so we're going to feel I mean, bad that's, about that's it. That's another. That's another issue of itself. It. But I mean, that's that's terrifying, dude. It is. I mean, it's. I can't believe the league is. I mean, they must have some medical information that we don't because, it, it, I don't see a, this league taking that risk on the player that doesn't really even have like ticket sale value. Like there's no like upside to taking the gamble. So they must have, you know, think that that their doctors are just better and, you know, think it's okay. Do you Um, see, I I mean, a team, um, I think Arcel, maybe I don't think Bob Sissian, he's not really impressed me. Um, uh, San Jose, maybe, uh, you know, if how long Miracle is out, um, I mean, I think he would fit in Orlando. I mean, because uh, it's just in general that free-flowing attack. I mean, Aquadale can fit in a lot of places. I mean, there aren't a lot of teams who wouldn't take a player that produces the numbers that he does per 90. Basically, the only thing you really need is to have him as a second striker as opposed to a lone striker. And, you know, outside of that, you know, you can find anyone, I think. You know, hell, if I were Colorado, I'd be looking at it. It's just that, you know, he's just that good. I, I would, if I were anyone, I'd look at it. Do you think that New England's really going to part with him, though? I mean, especially he's been kind of belligerent about the fact that, uh, and maybe belligerent isn't even the 
proper word, but I mean, you look at all the problems with him trying to go overseas, and then when he came back to the States, it seemed like New England was pretty dead set upon keeping him. I think my prediction is if they continue the experiment and they give it enough time of him out wide, I think him as a wing striker works very well. And I think when you look at his numbers from last year, a lot of them came in that position. They just didn't give him enough minutes. And I think if they realize what they have there, I think and I think they tried it last week. If they keep keep that up, I think that can be where he settles. And once he starts settling, then he can take off. Because he's not necessarily a, has to be a striker. Um, he just has to be in goal and in pockets of space near goal. And you can do that from a wing striker position. So let's talk Toronto FC. Uh 11 points in eight road games this season. Certainly not a bad start. Um, they have 15 home games left, 11 road games left. They're sitting fourth uh, in the Eastern Conference. Are they the favorites to win the East right now? Are they the fi- I really don't know what's going on with the East right now. It's, um, it's kind of uh, a very... Every team has a glaring flaw. So, yeah, I mean, they're... I feel like I, I still like New York. I'm, I'm, I still like New York. I mean, I can't... I mean, if New York finally settles on that 4-2-3-1, I know they went back to the 4-2-2-2 that's been, you know, failing for them or failed early in the season and it surprisingly didn't work. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I think the East, there's a lot to be settled. I think they are definitely, if everyone stays healthy, they're good. And they're good because they come up with the way where their entire offense is Jubinko based. So, and it looks like he might not be going to Euros, so that's going to help them out. That's going to be amazing. Yeah, so basically, they've shored up their defense. You know, they can get contributions here and there from Bradley and Alstor, but the fact that he has a goal or has assisted a goal, I mean, all of their goals have either been from him or assisted by him, is just flat out ridiculous. And it kind of, you know, when you have a player like that, you can build an offense like that. You can say, let's we're going to send these three players forward. We're just going to sit back a bit more. And they've opened up a little, but I, I think it's smart because there's no reason to open yourself up more when you have a player like him who's a one-man wrecking crew. And it's working. So I, I think they're definitely, as much as I don't like what they're doing stylistically, uh, I think, yeah, that I mean... I would. I guess I've talked this out. I guess they are definitely one of the favorites. I mean, as, as you said, there's kind of a cluster of teams, and it's not like there's a huge there's huge disparity uh, among this pack, right? So I mean, looking from New England, even Orlando City sitting seventh has 11 points. Columbus with 10. New England with 10. I mean, there's plenty of time for all these teams to definitely be involved chicago sitting with seven points in nine games uh eight goals in those nine games it's also we have talked about philadelphia haven't played a through ball yet this year union um (laughs) somehow uh, that's not a joke i looked this up today when i was looking at numbers yeah Uh, yeah because yeah and when i did the math and all that and i got the little division thing instead of a you know a number i'm like oh wow they don't have one they don't have a through ball this math literally cannot work. They cannot have a cross-the-three-ball ratio. Um, 
it's yeah it's uh, it's what they're doing is working i don't know if it's sustainable but um it's certainly gotten to a point where it's worth noticing yeah uh as i was saying chicago is kind of sitting i mean it's another bad year uh i had hopes with nelson rodriguez uh he seems like a smart guy seems like he knows what he's doing i guess they'll I hate saying they'll have to trust the process because that process has been broken for a number of years. But I th- I feel like they're, they're kind of going about it as best as they can. They made some smart moves this offseason. Hopefully that'll free up some opportunities for them to go. And, you know, as the season, uh, as the uh, midseason window opens, I, I imagine they're going to be quite busy for, for talent. And maybe they make this, this rather interesting, but... I mean, they have half, they have nearly half the points that the number six seed has right now, let alone, you know, what Montreal, the first place, you know, impact have. So I can't, really don't see them. Yeah. I think there are two things to note with them. I'm not sure if it's going to make much of a difference, but it certainly has made some. And that is, they've had injury problems with Goosens. Sure. Who may or may not be good he's shown flashes of being good and i think the biggest one is Ockham. well yeah david yeah, um, yeah he, he was their offense to start the season and when he because they were look like a pretty decent little counter team to start when they started the season it looked like oh maybe they got a little system here and when he went down system kind of imploded and he's only now getting back right so i mean maybe they can turn it around i'm not i don't know it's it's hard to say but money is I'd put money on them not because it is Chicago. Yeah. Um, so looking at these past results, and this is kind of what really sparked the conversation, you know, in, in our uh, Slack page was all the different, um, the disparity between shots in some of these games, uh, specifically uh, Sporting Kansas City, as you kind of pointed out, um, LA uh, Galaxy and Philadelphia, which uh, <laughs> how they scored two goals, let alone right. Play. Yeah, I mean there are four. I mean, do you want to just go through them like chronologically as they happen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kick right. it off. So the first one, if I find if I remember correctly, was the Philly LA game that was on Wednesday, and um, very interestingly, LA got a lot of applause and praise for, out of this game. I guess because the two the two buildups on their goals were nice looking. However, when you look at like the numbers and it even fooled me because I was thinking, oh, they're doing pretty well. And I looked up, I pulled up the tab, and I was like, oh, they only have two shots. They're, you know, it's halftime. Well, that's not good. And then they ended the game. Philly had 22 shots. LA had four shots. And, you know, when you look at shot ratios, shot ratios aren't always super illuminating. Maybe they were four very good shots. But we just got the expected goals back. And Philly's expected goals was at 4.04. LA was at 0.2. So, yeah, you, you would not expect LA to score two goals in this game. The shots they got were not great shots. And Philly, you would expect to score four goals in this game. So, I mean, I think this is an example of how uh, how um, just random uh, results can be within a small sample size. So over a long haul, this is if this game were played multiple times, Philly would win this game more times than not. But... And a lot of people will criticize stats. It's like, well, what's the value of these numbers? Because LA tied. 
Well, the value is that we know what's sustainable and what's not sustainable. Well, so exactly. I th- it's it's about the process. LA right. had a didn't have a very good process. They they really depended upon, you know, some a tactic that really didn't generate a lot of opportunities for them. And Philadelphia, they did a they did a lot of a lot of things really well um, this past weekend or last week. And I think they need to stick with it. I mean, that's. That's probably their best game this year. And even though they didn't pull three points from it, it, it just kind of it gives you that idea that, hey, we are on the right track. We're going to get results if we continue to have games like this. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I think the next one um, that had a really interesting uh, shot deficit was the TFC Vancouver game. Another game, Vancouver getting all this praise. What a great performance. Jump started their offense to go into Toronto hand them a loss when, you know, when Vancouver hasn't looked good this year. So this is, momentum-wise, this is, you know, big, good for confidence and all that. TFC had 21 shots in this game. Vancouver had eight. So, you know, that's a huge deficit. And when you look at the expected goals, Toronto was at 2.12. Vancouver was at 0.58 or 0.59 if you round up. And um, I think the one thing you could say about that is Vancouver got their goals on the counterattack. And yes. as we, as has been written about, um, I believe by Matthias and I, Jared, I think Jared wrote on it as well. We've seen that counterattack goals outperform the model because they don't take defender positioning into account. So there are fewer defenders on counterattacks. So maybe that you can sort of bump up that point point five nine a bit. But I think at the end of the day, this is a game again that Toronto should have won. Well, and I think that's kind of interesting that, you know, um, Vancouver played down a man for the last, you know, 15, almost 20 minutes uh, of this game. And Mana was substituted shortly after it, um, which kind of nullified their their counterattack. But the thing is that they were so quick, so fast to get goals up on the board that by the time that that had happened, it, it just was too late, too little, too, too late. And in both of these games, I would say that L.A. and Vancouver's goals were executed very well. And I think that's what's deceptive about these games, because there's something called like highlight bias, where you remember the highlights. So when you right. think back to at the highlights of Vancouver's attack and the highlights of LA, L.A.'s attack, you think that was some really stylish soccer. But, you know, when you look at the numbers, it wasn't very productive soccer. And I, I think you're, you're nailing it right on the head, especially when you see, as you pointed out earlier, um, Giovinco, who is a part of all three of these goals and been a part of all 13 of their goals this year. The, the guy is insane, and, and he is a human highlight reel. It's hard not to like what he does. Um same with Kakuta Mana, same with, you know, Pedro Morales had a had a couple of really great moments. And it's mm-hmm. hard not to really take away, wow, Pedro Morales is on top of it. Uh, you know? Blanio well, had he another did, great game too. Yeah. Well, I mean, Morales had one really good pass out of this out of this entire thing, and that was the assist to Mana. And maybe he had a couple more that are escaping my memory presently. And yeah, but, it's probably well, I true. He had a goal. I believe he had like a good settle and then he had the goal. He did. He did. So, I mean, he had the two shots and the key pass, which was an assist, which, you know, 
Okay, we we won't get into that because I know that's a sore subject. <laughs> I didn't mean to do that, but the point of the matter is, is that he had a really good like four or five minute period, but for the the larger moment or the larger whole of this game, you know, he wasn't competing with Giovinco. Giovinco just swallowed him up. But because you have, as you said, highlight bias, you kind of think of it as Morales and Gio kind of going head to head. It's not anything like that at all. Yeah, I, I think definitely. I think um, the next game is one where, you know, different conclusions can be gotten from uh, a very similar shot um, ratio. We have, this was the game where SKC had 34 shots and Orlando had seven. And, and I believe it what they, SKC didn't score till like their 30th shot or 31st, something like that. Um, so people were floating out. What's the record for, you know, not scoring uh, from shots and all that. So what's really interesting about this game in particular was I really wanted to know what, cause I was noticing something about their shots. They weren't generally good shots. And their expected goals in this game were th- was 3.19. Um, Orlando City's was 0.401. And I think what's interesting about that is, while that's a big number, when you look at 34 shots, it's not. I would say that's not really big enough. I, I think that's indicative of an offense. And I think this is something that you've pointed out. Um, the that they're not. Uh, well, we can go into that in a second. But I think the problem right now with them is they can't get good shots. And I think. One of the primary reasons for this is when they traded Namath and replaced him with with uh, Davis, like two things happened there. You're taking away shots in Namath and you're replacing it with crosses, and you know that that's fine if you have like a Kai Kamara up top, but you don't. You have a Dwyer. So in the end, what you're doing with those crosses is you're taking the ball off of Benny's feet more, and I think that's really hurt this team because it's not, it's no longer about the Benny Dwyer connection. It's you're seeing more Zuzi more. Davis and those players just don't really fit Dwyer and I think since Dwyer's their only goal scorer it's been a huge problem for them this year and I think this team is just crying out for that designated player they have Diego Rubio I think they need to get him out on the wing and try that out or maybe even Justin Mapp but they've got to try something because you know people have sort of latched on and are loving Davis there but I I don't think it's working at all well he's amazing it's you realize that he's a U.S. men's national team player, right? He went to the World Cup over Landon Donovan, so I mean, he's got some skills. He does. He has he has a lot of um, amazing type skills that you know he does. <laughs> I don't want to knock him too much because he is a good like he is the most cultured left foot this league has ever seen. I want to throw that <laughs> since we are mocking him pretty heavily. <laughs> well, I mean, okay, I, just looking at it right now. Uh, pulling it up, Zussi's touch percentage has actually gone down. So it's not necessarily that they're they're take they're on the ball more. It, it's more about what they're doing with the with their opportunities when they're on the ball. But what about Benny's? Would would be my question because that's actually a good crosses in general in possession. It either ends in a shot or it ends in a uh, just losing the ball to the defense. And generally, when oh, you put in a, it's, it's down. down. Yeah, it's down about uh, a percent and change. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to, you know, he's I under, would speculate. He's, he's under 10%, which is kind of ad, abnormal for that. That, that is very, yeah, that's forward plays. level. For a team that possesses the ball as much as they do, and I know that it is adjusted, um, 
that is super that's like a forward level low so um i think i don't know what he was at last year but that's use that that's exactly uh, what i would expect yeah that's what i would expect when you when both your wingers are sending in crosses and i know they they keep saying no they're inverted they're not they're coming in and taking shots and they are to some extent but they're not but they're not high leverage shots they're still outside the box i mean it's easy to throw up 60 i mean everybody's like well they threw up 60 they went 66 shots sean without a goal and then everybody says well they're just getting unlucky well no they're not just getting unlucky they're taking a lot of really terrible shots and it's kind of a small wonder why they're not successful and i kind of stole your line there but i mean yeah they're not good necessarily i mean it's it's easy to understand this isn't a markov chain right so just because you were unsuccessful on your last shot doesn't improve the odds of the next shot being better right Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely there it's a static opportunity i mean and, and on top of that they're not taking shots with you know low probability of defenders they're probably they're taking a lot of shots with defenders in their face and around that goal that are that are expected goal um calculator really can't see but this is why they're continuing to get you know quote unquote unlucky is just they're taking bad shots yeah i believe because i remember when i was scoring for coelho for uh one for the game um since i have him on my fancy team uh one of his shots that i got points for was from like the halfway line and it, and it was like it was on goal, I believe. But like, it was, but I was just like, I guess I get points for that. Um, but, but yeah, it, it just in a nutshell seemed exactly um, like what they're going through right now. And I don't. And I know I kind of do this. Um, I've noticed I do this a bit too much. It probably comes off as braggadocious, but I only do this to point out the value of analytics and predicting things. This is something that I predicted would happen when Davis came into this team. And I'm not the only one. And I know Matt Doyle wrote about that losing Namath was going to uh, be a problem for them. Uh, I don't know. He didn't really highlight uh, uh, Davis quite as much as I did. Um, but I think, again, this is these are foreseeable problems. And I think this is another area where analytics really could have helped this, could have prevented this to some degree. Well, I don't think that they're trying to prevent it. I think that they're embracing this. I think that, I I mean, not to look down on them, but I think that there's a certain level that they're trying to embrace this mentality. And it's not that they're trying to take, you know, touches away from Benny Fellhaber, but they're trying, it's it's almost that Charles Reap approach is we're putting more balls closer to the net. We're going to be more successful. Right. Well, I think. Which isn't necessarily true. Right, and I think a lot of the problems in MLS is what gets associated with success isn't necessarily what's getting you successful. And while they have done that in the pre- previous years and been successful, it's more about how they did it. And I'm right. I'm starting to, to wonder, as much as I have thought Vermees was really understood his system, whether he really understands his system right now. Because when you look at Dwyer, and he's your only goal scorer, and two of your three chance creators are set up for the exact opposite type of forward to Dwyer, who's this little channel runner, short, you know, doesn't win a lot of burials, doesn't really make sense. It kind of goes back to that Houston thing. Houston's leading the league in, like, the passes that are crosses, and yet none of their forwards can win crosses. So it's like, why are you doing, like, what's the, it just seems like the build is inherently flawed. And I think that um, 
that was something that was totally foreseeable when he brought Davis in and if when projecting him to start. So, and I think they have the tools. I think Rubio needs to start uh, out wide, um, see if they can't get different dynamic going, but something has to change. I agree. All right, and then the final game that uh, we saw a crazy shot total or shot differential was the Portland-NYCFC game. And then NYCFC ended up winning this one, but Portland had 24 shots, and NYCFC had... And oh, I believe the expected goal on that was Portland was 2.5, NYCFC was 8.4. And that's, you know, to be expected. I don't think you would expect that Tommy Mack beautiful goal to go in. That's a very low-leverage chance, um, you know, uh, that he very masterfully puts in the net. Um, Dad Villa's chance wasn't uh, super high leverage either. Um, and Portland was getting very good shots, shot location-wise, all night. Um, and I, I think this is an example of um, uh, just, again, sample size. And how if you play this out enough, Portland's going to win these games. I so agree. it's not necessarily something to panic. And, again, I, it's something to go over because a lot of fans who don't understand why these numbers are used per game because they're not always super valuable per game because if it goes so far, so against the final scoreline, they'll question and they'll wonder, what's the, clearly your model's wrong, it doesn't work, it's broken. And I think that's just a fundamentally like misunderstanding like what the model's trying to do. And it's not really trying to predict one game because nothing can do that. It's trying to predict sustainability of doing what they did. Well, exactly. And the bottom line, I think, isn't necessarily that they were um, robbed. And I know that that's that, – damn, that's – it's a tough break. Like, the outcome that – anytime a referee influences a situation within a game, I mean, it's – Okay, what – which one are we – which call are we really – are we really going to say that they got robbed on? I mean, the that handball – a, the, hand, the handball, there is there is a definite um, situation no. where there could have been a penalty for no. uh, Portland. The, are we, are we, I mean, you t- there's the Milano one. Okay, the Milano one, um, defender gets the ball first. There is a little bit of a tug. Milano goes down easy. It's borderline because Milano is actually, you know, he's sort of feeding into it. So, you know, he's going down. He's riding the contact. I personally, it's something probably, um, you know, if I, if I saw it clearly as a ref, I would call it. But I don't think that they – it's not something that's so egregious that, that it's being made out to be that they were robbed. So I, I don't think that they were I, robbed. I, I, think I don't they think – They got unlucky in, board, in calls that could have gone either way. That's I, – I think that that's exactly it. And I think you nailed it. If they replay this game, Portland comes away with a uh, with a win. Um, I, I think – Probably if you play this game 10 times, they lose this game maybe once, maybe twice, and 60% of the time they win. <laughs> I, you yeah, know, you can't put this on the refs. Like. Hey, it's Drew, folks. <laughs> it's our timber specialist. Hey, guys, just just, just arrived. Um, yeah, I mean, like, people have been pointing to those two calls. The handball happens every game. It just usually doesn't directly lead to a goal. It actually reminds me of MLS Cup when the ball was – two feet out of bounds and then led to a goal. It, you know, it's, it's something that happens on occasion. Uh, 
obviously even less rare than it going out of bounds. <laughs> and uh, it's just so rare that actually anything comes of it that people don't usually think about it. So, it, I mean, that's you can't hang your hat on that. And mono one, maybe a PK, uh, but mostly, I mean, in a way, the fact that that could have been called has taken away from the fact that Wano was on a one-on-one with the goalkeeper, and instead of shooting or passing or do any doing anything, decided to fall over and throw his hands up in the air rather than taking a shot or doing anything. So, in a way, I feel like it's you know giving him an out that he doesn't deserve because he was garbage that whole game. He got into really good positions and did nothing with it. And uh, so I, I I don't think the Timbers, I don't think the Timbers does uh, necessarily, well they definitely don't have any right to blame the refs. And the, the other side of that is that they were the better team by far on the night. They're going to dominate. They dominated the expected goals. And uh, I don't think that they necessarily need to be worried. I mean, that said, this is the first time since Caleb Porter has been coached that they've lost three games in a row. But again, that it's not because they performed all that terribly. They just got a little unlucky. Well, and I think the other thing that I pointed out in the Slack was that, you know, after Audi went off, I mean, they they kind of got dominated with the shot total. I mean, um, yeah, between, what, they only took like four or five shots after that, I think. Right. They, they took it. What? They, uh, I didn't even put it in the, the liner notes, but I think that they got uh, four shots and versus about nine uh, for NYC. So, I mean, NYC definitely took it to them in that in that second part. And, you know, that that happens. Did, did you, you guys get, already say the expected goals for this game? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, I do I mean, have a theory it's... as to what's going on in Portland. Are you ready for this, Drew? Please. <laughs> I think that Nagby, I think the team has been cursed for that awful, awful challenge where Nagby broke Deong's knee. Um, <laughs> yeah. Deong's been out for four, I think four or five weeks now after that challenge. Um, I just absolutely Is that the challenge Nagby. that he injured himself on? <laughs> we. we no one in the galaxy is actually confirming or denying that it exists. The only reason we know that it's a knee is because Robbie spilled the beans before Bruce came up and said, oh, no, DeYoung's strong. He's doing well. So we're, he was kind of clearly, um, not necessarily lying, but playing fast and loose with what strong means. Um, and they're not returning calls to journalists. So it's very unclear what's going on with DeYoung right now. But uh, it's entirely possible that Nagby's steel ankles, because he, he did come back. Like, like two days later. So, um, yeah, it was like I, I think a week and a half. But yeah, much very much quicker than anyone thought after. Yeah, so so it's quite possible that Nagby, field quite by... possible Nagby ended De Young's career quite awfully. And you know, I think it's fair Tom to say bitch, as, most, isn't it? as most Timbers <laughs> fans will would say that Nagby should sit out for as long as De Young sits out, or De Young is out injured. I think that's the only fair way. Well, I see. I thought you were going to go a completely different route with this, and I thought that you guys, I thought your theory was going to be based upon perhaps a local analyst to the Portland region and uh, writing specific uh, specific notes that Porter, Porter might have been taking suggestions on. Um, I'm not going to touch that. I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm not. Kevin won't be sticking around. All right, well, gentlemen, it's always fun chit-chatting with you. Drew, yeah. thanks so uh, thanks so much for uh, jumping on with us. It's good to hear your voice. Likewise, brother. It's been too long. Yeah. 
uh, we'll try to try to keep these going. Um, until then, uh, Drew, say goodbye. Federico Iguain. Sean, say goodbye. <laughs> goodbye. Uh, until uh, next time, Kai Kamara, and I'll see you later. Shut your face, high school jerks. We're about to show you how this works. Are we cool? Laser beams. We're about to awesome all your dreams. And you'll say, what are you, some kind of computer? And we'll say, a cyborg pimp from the future. And I'm going deaf for cheesy. I'm feeling a bit uneasy. Rock. We're hip